The scripture reading for today is from the New Living Translation, Jonah 3, 3 through 5, 10 and 4, 1 through 4. This time, Jonah obeyed the Lord's command and went to Nineveh, a city so large that it took three days to see it all. On the day Jonah entered the city, he shouted to the crowds, Forty days from now, Nineveh will be destroyed. The people of Nineveh believed God's message, and from the greatest to the least, they declared a fast and put on a burlap to show their sorrow. When God saw what they had done and how they had put a stop to their evil ways, he changed his mind. It did not carry out the destruction he had threatened. This change of plans greatly upset Jonah, and he became very angry. So he complained to the Lord about it. Didn't I say before I left home that you would do this, Lord? That is why I went away, ran away to Tarshish. I knew that you are a merciful and compassionate God, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. You are eager to turn back from destroying people. Just kill me now, Lord. I'd rather be dead than alive if what I predicted will not happen. The Lord replied, Is it right for you to be angry about this? The word of the Lord. Good morning. Thank you, Jaylee, for reading our text, and kids can be dismissed back to the meadow. As you turn in your Bibles to the book of Jonah, well, Mike Stroh, one of the other pastors here, I'm going to add my welcome to you, especially if you're a guest with us this morning. But did you hear the one about the lobster diver who got swallowed by the humpback? Sounds kind of like the beginning of a joke, but if you follow the news, you probably saw and read about this just last month. You know, as a preacher, you're always looking for stories that might, you know, illustrate a biblical text, and you get to the book of Jonah, and it doesn't get more relevant or current than this. But this lobster diver, Michael Packard, he was diving for lobsters because, you know, that's what lobster divers do in the coastal waters of Provincetown, Massachusetts. And he reports, he said, all of a sudden, I felt this huge bump and everything went dark. He first feared it was a great white shark. He thought, hey, I'm done for. But he felt around, there was no obvious injury. He didn't feel any teeth. And he quickly realized he must be in the mouth of a whale. I was completely inside, he said. It was completely black. I thought to myself, there's no way I'm getting out of here. I'm done. I'm dead. He had his scuba gear on, so he was able to breathe, but he's struggling in the whale's mouth for about 30 to 40 seconds. That would be a long 30 to 40 seconds. The whale finally surfaced and literally flung Packard from his mouth. His only injury was a dislocated knee. So I read a little more about this guy. He's an expert lobster diver, a dangerous job, obviously, right, that few sign up for. And about 10 years ago, he actually survived a deadly plane crash over the jungles of Costa Rica. He was stranded, badly injured in the jungle for days before being rescued. This guy's got some stories. This guy's got some stories. But you know what? From now on, people, I think, are only going to want to hear one. The time he was in the mouth of a whale. I mean, he's now that guy, right? That now defines him. He could go on to win the Nobel Prize, and he will always, forever be that guy, that lobster diver who was swallowed by a whale. 
So reading this guy's story, it struck me, apart from the obvious way that it connects to our text, that similar to him, this book, to many people, will always just be that book about the guy who gets swallowed by a whale or by a fish. There is such incredible depth to this short book. There is so much this book has to say to us. But I'm afraid we often hear the story as kids. We maybe file it away and we sadly miss so much of its message. We continue our series in the Minor Prophets. We've called Live Justly, Love Mercy. Huge themes throughout all of the prophets, especially the Minor Prophets. And we're looking at each, uh, each week at a different prophet. Last week, Diana opened the short book of Obadiah for us. We saw the dangers of spiritual pride. We were reminded just how much God is after our hearts. And in many ways, that truth opens up and sets up what we're going to see in story form in the book of Jonah this morning. We'll look primarily at the end of the book. We'll see a really honest picture of the ways that we, even as believers, often run from God. But we'll also see in our text the way that God continues to pursue us in love, to invite us into the life he wants us to share. Would you pray with me? Lord Father, we come before you each week as we do in total dependence. As we just sang, we pray that you would reign in our hearts. Would you reign in this place, reign in these moments that we have to open your word. And especially as we come to a really familiar story in Scripture, I pray that we would have new eyes to see it. We would have open hearts to receive the truth, not just to learn something new about Scripture, but to be transformed into the likeness of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, let's look for just a moment at the beginning of the book. We want to set the scene before we get to the end. So look at Jonah chapter 1 and verse 1, if you have your Bible open in front of you. Jonah 1 and verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. So this prophet Jonah, he's mentioned elsewhere in Scripture in 2 Kings 14. And he made a prophecy that came true about Israel's expanding borders under the reign of Jeroboam II. And so Jonah ministered in the 8th century B.C., so he would be contemporaries with Hosea and Amos who we already heard about. Verse 2, Arise, God said to Jonah, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against us, for their evil has come up before me. Already in verse 2, this book sets itself apart from all the rest. The prophets that came before Jonah, surely, as we've already seen in our series, they would make prophecies, they would make, they would announce judgment on surrounding nations, but they were never sent there personally. They were never told to actually go there. But Jonah is. And it wasn't just anywhere. God is calling Jonah to the capital of Assyria at the time, an empire that was a direct threat to his own nation. Assyria was one of the most violent empires in the ancient world. They inflicted horrific tortures on their enemies. They enslaved the ones they didn't maim and kill. But even with that in mind, verse 3 still comes as no less of a shock. Look at verse 3. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So here's a book we know already at the outset is going to defy all our expectations. God's prophet, the man of God, not the pagans, is the one that's running from God in this story. 
This is the only minor prophet that's focused on the prophet himself and not his message. Here's a book filled with irony, filled with dramatic plot twists. And again, here's where maybe our familiarity with this book can give us some trouble because we've lost the shock factor, right? We know the story. There's This shock factor is not just to entertain. This book is considered a masterpiece of ancient literature, even apart from it being the Word of God. But this story at the time of its writing was meant to shock, to shake Israel out of their complacency, out of their spiritual blindness and hypocrisy. And it's really meant to do the same for us today as modern believers. And so if we have ears to hear spiritually, this book cuts straight to the heart. Because remember, that's what God's after. Just as he was after Jonah's heart. But before we get quite to the end, let's do a little cliff notes run through just to get our bearings here in the book. So let's quickly just remind ourselves what happens uh, in the first three chapters. So God calls Jonah. What does Jonah do? Jonah runs from God. He gets on a ship headed in the opposite direction. God pursues Jonah. He doesn't just let him go his own way. We might expect, okay, well, he's, he's gone. Let me call another prophet. But no, God pursues Jonah. He brings a storm, and we see on this ship that the pagan sailors have much more sense than Jonah does, don't they? They're the ones that have to tell him to get up and pray. Jonah finally admits, okay, guys, it's me. Throw me overboard. Save yourselves. And at first, that seems like a pretty noble uh, gesture from Jonah. Uh, No, it's not noble at all, right? He could have begged God for mercy. He could have prayed. He could have said, okay, God, I'll do it. But no, what does he say? Throw me overboard. I'd rather die than do what God told me to do. Okay. So the sailors, remember, they're the noble ones. They're the ones acting justly. They do all they can to avoid throwing him over. But finally, they have no choice. They throw Jonah in the sea. The storm stops immediately. And they start praying and sacrificing to the one true God. No thanks at all uh, to to God's own prophet. And that's, of course, when the famous big fish comes along and swallow Jonah and save him from drowning. And by the way, I shared that story of the lobster diver at the beginning, not to prove that this is historically possible, because what we have here clearly is a miracle. If God is able to create the universe, if God is able to raise his son Jesus from the dead, I think he's he's okay making a fish swallow a man. Okay, so we just got to get that straight. I think, if we come with some skepticism. But chapter 2 gives us this eloquent prayer that Jonah prays from the fisher's belly. Many see this prayer as repentance, a change of heart. But what you won't find anywhere in this prayer is him saying, I'm sorry, I was wrong. Instead, he sees this, in my opinion, as the sign of God's vindication, that God does agree with Jonah. So Jonah only agrees to go through with it because he thinks God will destroy Nineveh. After all, as Jonah has wanted all along, as we'll see in chapter 4. Now this is my favorite book of the Bible, if you know me at all. It's painful for me to have to skip over so much of this content. But look quickly at chapter 2 and verse 8, the end of his prayer. Look how he just throws this in. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. Don't just breeze over this. Who's he talking about? 
the pagans, the Ninevites, the sailors on the ship right above him. Look how ridiculous Jonah is, right? He's cramped inside the belly of a fish saying, those poor idolaters. Who's the only one in the story forsaking God's love? It's him. He ends his prayer with a self-righteous jab at his opponents. And the funny thing is, he doesn't realize idols aren't just made out of wood and stone. Idols can be in our hearts. Jonah is so blind, he doesn't see he is the idolater in this story. Idols of the heart can be even more dangerous because they're subtle. They lurk beneath the surface, and we can keep them hidden even from ourselves. So the fish finally vomits out Jonah onto the shore. I like to think it's because the fish heard Jonah's arrogant prayer. But I love how artists in history have imagined this bibli- uh, all biblical scenes, but this one in particular. I like this one by Pieter Lastman, 1621. Just take that in. This guy was a teacher of Rembrandt. It looks like Jonah's being flung violently He's about to land on some rocks. He's having trouble staying fully clothed while he's being vomited. I mean, you know, that's never happened to me before, but maybe, you know, that's just kind of what happens. But it looks like he didn't miss out on his workouts (laughs) for those three days. That's dedication for all his faults. You know, he didn't miss leg day, even inside the fish. So next time you feel like slacking... Look at Jonah. And then there's this one, 18th century depiction by an anonymous artist. This one's got less detail, but at least he's still fully clothed, right? And he may actually survive the landing in this one. In fact, it's actually kind of graceful. He somehow gets kind of a one-handed thing going. I don't know if this is how you imagine the scene. And one more, circa 1280. Not really sure what to do with this one. Just let you take that in. Is this how you imagined it? Notice Jonah's grumpy expression, though. I love that. If you can see it. He's got the frown. He's upset. But the fish is quite happy. The fish is really happy. Jonah's bringing good tidings to Nineveh. Or maybe a roll of toilet paper. I can't quite tell what that is. It was early in the pandemic, right? He just wanted to play it safe. I don't know. And I'll just leave those there. I don't know how you imagine the scene, okay? But Jonah's again at this point on dry land. We presume he survived, okay? Even if he was flung violently onto some rocks, he survived. He's now headed to Nineveh. Look at chapter 3 and verse 4. Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Jonah's message is just five words in Hebrew. Now, whether this was a summary of his longer message or whether this was really all he said, the author of this book wants us to know for certain that what happens next is not thanks to Jonah. That much is clear, right? What would we expect to happen? A Hebrew prophet wanders into Nineveh preaching gloom and doom, and he smells like fish guts, right? What do you think is going to happen to this guy? Remember, the Assyrians are not known for their hospitality. 
He wouldn't last five minutes. And yet another shocking twist. They repent. From the king on down to every person in the city and for humor, even the animals get in on the repentance here. They all repent of their injustice. They call out to God. Look what the king says in verse 9. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Who knows? Love that question. Who knows? Who, who does know? Jonah, maybe? But that was conveniently left out of those five words in Hebrew that God might show them mercy. Verse 10, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. God's mercy here is unbelievable. And for some of us, that's where the story ends. Neat little bow, happy ending. God finally got through to his stubborn prophet. He showed mercy on this wicked city. Happy ending, right? I I saw one children's book, a retelling of this story, and this is quite literally where the story ends. Jonah and the Ninevites all partying together in the streets. And again, maybe that's what we would expect at this point. Even after Jonah's rebellion so far, finally, this is going to get through to Jonah's heart. But the story's not done. There's a whole other chapter. So look at chapter 4 and verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. Of all the plot twists in this book, maybe this one's the biggest. Maybe this one's the most shocking. So I want us to park here for just, for our remaining time this morning, just a few moments. In this chapter, all the major events are past, And now Jonah's just sitting alone with God. And we get to see both of their hearts on full display. And as we read, again, if we read with open hearts, I think we get to see our heart as well. So look again at the text. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. So Jonah reveals in this pity party, he reveals the reason he ran from God in the first place. Not because he was scared of the Ninevites. He wasn't afraid of torture and death. He knew God was merciful. That's why he ran. I mean, God, your your grace is great and all until you decide to be the same kind of God to my enemies. Then it's not so great. I mean, I'll take all the grace you have to give and they can have all the judgment and all shall be well, right? God's mercy displeased Jonah. Verse 1 is literally, it was exceedingly evil to him. It was evil. Jonah was so blinded that God's incredible goodness was to him like evil. Jonah's angry. What are you angry about this morning? What have you been angry about lately? I mean, there's a lot of anger going around, and you probably didn't know that, but there's a lot of anger going around. People are angry about COVID, they're angry about masks, they're angry about politics. They're angry at the people who are angry. They're angry at family and friends who have disappointed them in some way. 
Whatever's been making you angry, and by the way, you may have a really good reason to be angry, but whatever's been making you angry, hear verse 4. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Or as the NASB translates it, do you have a good reason to be angry? Oh God, you just had to ask me that question, didn't you? I'd much rather be angry than answer that question. But Jonah thought he had a good reason to be angry, didn't he? He was so convinced, he said, you know what, God, it's better for me to die than to go on in this world where you're going to do things uh, not the way I want you to. And please don't miss this. Jonah's reason to be angry was biblical. Jonah had a passion for justice, didn't he? Like all the prophets, but he felt that God's mercy here violated his justice. I mean, sin and evil should bring judgment, right? That's kind of how it works. Jonah's got a good point, frankly. And now we love to think our perspective is biblical too, don't we? I'm not talking about the core doctrines of our faith. Please hear me. But I'm talking about on everything else. When we're talking about an opinion on some secondary issue, some current event, sometimes I hear people say, well, I just believe the Bible. End of story. Period. But what that often means is that we've chosen or maybe we've been spoon-fed a set of verses that leads us in one direction to a certain opinion and we often just ignore the other scriptures that might challenge that view. Jonah could understand God's justice. He could get a grasp on that, right? That made sense. Sin equals judgment. But he didn't much like that God's grace and his mercy had to also somehow get crammed into that equation too. Where does that fit? So he just rejected it outright. He just pretended it wasn't there, that it didn't apply. God, you're gracious and merciful, and frankly, I don't like it. I mean, at least he was honest. I'll give him that. Because as limited human beings, God will always be beyond our comprehension. If you serve a God, you can understand, frankly, you don't know the true God. And God's actions are often beyond our comfort zone. They're beyond our preferences. And man, there's a freedom in admitting that. God is God. God is so much bigger and far beyond us. He is God and we are not. And yet, wow, what fear that can stir in our hearts, right? We tend to reduce God to what we can understand, what we can control, what we can fit in a box. But then, of course, we miss out on as Jonah does here, what God is really trying to do in our hearts. What God is really trying to do through us. We heard in the call to worship the parable of the prodigal son. Many have noted how this parable parallels the book of Jonah. Jesus may have had the book of Jonah in mind as he's telling this parable. And here in Jonah chapter 4, the prophet takes on the role of the older brother. The self-righteous one, complaining to his father for showing mercy to the rebellious younger brother. Not seeing the grace that the father wants to show him too. In his blindness, the older brother misses the party. He's angry. Just like Jonah sitting outside the city. Jonah, like the older brother, he's a Pharisee. The religious elite of Jesus' day. 
Now, the Pharisees, if you know anything about them, they needed everything to be in black and white. 613, some Old Testament laws weren't specific enough for them, so they added their own down to the minutest detail. Every breath of their lives could be controlled. It could be fit into a box. So their whole walk with God was something they could understand. They became so entrenched in their way of viewing things that they completely missed, didn't they? When God broke into their world, when God took on flesh, when Jesus stood right before them and opened up God's word to them that they knew so well, they completely missed him. They completely rejected him. Jonah's angry with God for his mercy, this incredible miracle in Nineveh, just as the Pharisees were angry with Jesus often, remember, for healing on the Sabbath. You just want to shake these guys. Do you realize what you're saying? Do you know you just saw him heal someone? And we want to get through to Jonah. Do you realize what you're saying? But Jesus kept trying to get the Pharisees to wake up. As believers in Christ, we too can act like Jonah. We too can act like a Pharisee. If you were here last week, we saw some ways that we might struggle with spiritual pride, like you might have spiritual pride if. I just wanted to pick up on that theme. You might be acting like a Pharisee if. Here's just a few to consider. There are so many other ways. Here's a few. You might be acting like a Pharisee if everyone outside your immediate circle and even some within your immediate circle are always wrong. You might be living like a Pharisee if God's still small voice sounds a lot like your own. You might be living like a Pharisee if you see people who disagree with you as enemies. You might be a Pharisee if you care more about sharing your opinion with someone than showing them love. And maybe most important of all, you might be a Pharisee if you know the word of God, but not the God of the word. It's so dangerous when knowing about God and even doing things for God can take the place in our hearts of actually walking with God, actually knowing God in a relationship. How could the Pharisees who knew the Bible so well, inside and out, completely miss God's Son? How could Jonah, a dedicated, devoted prophet of Israel, so actively oppose God? How can we so often, who know Christ, who have the full revelation of Scripture, how can we often be so blind to the ways that we, in the words of Jesus, strain at gnats and swallow a camel? It all comes back to what we saw in chapter 2, idolatry. Idols of the heart. They start out as good things, but they slowly, without our knowing, they creep into the top spot. For Jonah... He loved his nation. It was a very good thing to do, to love his nation. But that became an idol for Jonah when he wouldn't let God bless another nation. Jonah had a passion for justice. What an awesome passion as we've been seeing in the prophets. This is near and dear to the heart of God. And even that became an idol for Jonah when he wanted to see his enemies get their due. In the same way, we can all be blinded by idols of the heart. 
Maybe it's our passion for God's truth becomes an idol and we demand to be right all the time. When we elevate our opinions over unity, over the great commandment even. Our desire for safety and security can become an idol. When the uncertainty in our lives just shakes us to the core, maybe we lash out at others in our relationships. We scramble for some kind of illusion of control. And if you've been struggling with anger, ask yourself, what idol is that revealing? Remember, anger is so often a surface response to something much deeper, like fear. We don't want to admit when we're fearful. We like to accuse other people, right, of being fearful. But often we have fear in our hearts. We have worry in our hearts. What do you fear most losing? The answer to that may point you to an idol. I mean, do you remember what Jonah said in his prayer? Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. And Jonah didn't even know he was talking about himself. And we so easily read this book and don't know he's talking about us. You're right, Jonah. You are forsaking your hope. You are missing out on the party. This book has so much depth. Every time I approach it, I feel like it applies to me in a new way. Studying for this sermon, I just couldn't get away from how the posture of Jonah speaks right to our cultural moment. In chapter 4, we find Jonah in the same place that so many believers are in right now. He's angry, he's isolated, and he's entrenched. The events of the last several months have pushed many of us to similar places. We can so easily slide into anger when the world as we want it to be doesn't work out. We can become more and more entrenched when we only listen to the same voices. We can grow comfortable in our isolation and even choose isolation and not be challenged and edified by Christian community. I want you to see that Jonah is the only static, unmoving, unchanging character in the entire story. Even God relents. Even God changes his mind about bringing judgment. And we can be stagnant like that in our hearts. So let's ask God to show us if we are sliding into some of these same tendencies. Maybe this past year you've slid more into being a little bit more rigid, a little bit more judgmental, a little bit angrier, a little bit more convinced of your own perspective. Let's ask God instead to help us grow in gratitude, independence, Enjoy, to be more gracious, to grow more forgiving, to grow just more in awe of who God is. A God beyond our comprehension. And if you haven't already been this week, I challenge you to spend time in the book of Jonah this week. Both in solitude, by yourself before God, and in community. Asking God to reveal your heart. God, what are the idols in my heart? that are keeping me from a closer walk with you, that are keeping me from reaching out with the love of Christ. Ask someone in your connection group, somebody you trust, hey, what are the spiritual blind spots that you see right now in my life? And then listen. 
This can seem like kind of a downer of a message, but I want us to hear this as a message of hope. Because we want to see our idols. If we want to know the truth, we want to see what's really in our hearts. We want to repent of those idols so we can live into the fullness of life in Christ. If you see yourself in Jonah in some way, don't be discouraged. Praise God. Because God is pursuing you in love and grace just like he pursued his stubborn prophet. But he invites us to respond. We have to open our hearts. We have to listen. We have to receive the grace ourselves. We can't do that on our own. It's a work of the Spirit. It's got to be the provision of Christ in us. I love the way pastor and author Tim Keller puts it. The book of Jonah teaches us to look ahead to how God saved the world through the one who called himself the ultimate Jonah, so that he could be both just and the justifier of those who believe. Only when we readers fully grasp this gospel will we be neither cruel exploiters like the Ninevites, the younger brother, nor pharisaical believers like Jonah, the older brother but rather spirit-changed, Christ-like women and men. See, God's justice is satisfied at the cross. God's mercy is displayed at the cross. If you don't know Christ as your Savior, you may, have been running, you may be running from God in some obvious outward ways in your life or some more subtle ways in your heart that you're keeping God at arm's length. But see in the book, wherever you are, unbeliever or believer, that God is pursuing you in love. His grace and forgiveness is for you. Whether we're the worst rebellious sinners or the most self-righteous religious people, God is pursuing us. So wherever your heart is right now, take a step of faith toward Christ. And lastly, look at the last verse of the book. Chapter 4 and verse 11. God asked Jonah another question, and he asked us another question. Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? Should I not pity Nineveh, Jonah? Much like a parable or a movie with an open ending, We're left to decide how this ends because we're the ones that have to answer the question ourselves because God is after our hearts. Let's give him our hearts this morning. Would you pray with me? Well, our Father, we thank you for the sometimes painful truth this book reveals about our rebellious hearts. It's easy to point the finger at Jonah And not look at ourselves, not look at our own hearts. Whether we turn away from you openly and angrily or by trusting in our obedience as if we could earn your grace. Open our eyes to the ways that you are pursuing us in love. And we ask you to grow us in the fruit of the Spirit. We ask you to enable us to obey you more fully, to love you with all our hearts, to love our neighbor as ourselves to step further into the fullness of life that you invite us into. Fullness of life in Christ. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us stand.